Hey guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome to No Limits, a Mitch Rap podcast. How you doing today, Mike? It's a great day out today. Today is probably one of the warmest days we've had in recent weeks since quarantine started. And so you get a lot of people ringing your doorbell. <laughs> and, uh, I've been out back doing some work and uh, it's been great. How about you? It's a great day up here in Ithaca. We finally, we had a brief little snowstorm last weekend. Now we're, we're in the seventies today, eighties tomorrow, I think. So I got out this morning, had a nice run. So it was nice. Well, for our Twitter roundup, it's, uh, it's really feeling like total power time. Kyle Mills, actually, just a few hours ago, he tweeted that the final manuscript will be in the can come Sunday night. So when we record, that's just a few days out. And we're going to have something special to do. August and September, getting ready for the September 15th release of Total Power. The next Mitch Rap book, we are going to have to do some exciting stuff on the show. Also, he wrote back to us, Kyle Mills. Uh, he posted a picture of him putting the finishing touches and editing the manuscript. He had a can on the table, an aluminum can. So I, I reached out to see what his uh, liquid of choice was. And I'm pretty satisfied with the answer. Kroger lemon seltzer. I'm a seltzer fan. Ooh, I love seltzer. I liked it. It's a Huge good choice. seltzer fan. Nice. I like the different flavors, you know, like the black cherry. My favorite is Wegmans has this uh, ginger one, and I use it as a substitute for ginger ale and like bourbon and gingers. That's pretty good. There you go. Check it out. There you go. Another thing Kyle Mills gave us as a gift on Twitter, he came on the at Atria Mystery Bus hashtag social distancing theater series, and he shared three reading recommendations. He, he offered three books. Pretty good ones. I haven't gotten to them, but I've read a lot of reviews. And so he recommends One Minute Out by Mark Graney in the Gray Man series. La Sombra del Viento, who is a, a Spanish thriller. And the last one is going to get a lot of traction, Savage Son, Jack Carr. And did you hear the announcement? Did you hear the announcement about Jack Carr series? No, I didn't. What happened? Chris Pratt is going to play James Reese, the Ooh, protagonist. Nice. And it's getting picked up uh, by Amazon. So it's going to be an Amazon series. Oh, if it's anything like their Jack Ryan series, then it's going to be good. Because I'm enjoying the Jack Ryan series. So They did a good job with that. Jack Carr is blown up. And Chris Pratt, he's an honest guy. Uh, Jack actually mentioned and talked about his relationship with, with Chris Pratt on the Joe Rogan show. And Chris sounds like a supporter of the military, great actor, humble guy. And so couldn't have picked someone better, you know, to get, he was role. really good in uh, zero dark 30 as a Navy seal. Yep. Yep. He's got yeah. some history and then, you know, star Lord, right? So star Lord. Nice. That's it. Star Lord is James Reese or Reese is star Lord or both. <laughs> All right, Chris, what are we getting into on our bonus episode? All right. So today in our bonus episode, you know, every once in a while, we're going to break it down, some, some aspect of research that we feel like goes well with a specific topic that we covered in our latest book, this one being term limits. Today, we're going to be breaking down the history of term limits. Later on in the podcast, we're going to be bringing you an interview with Phil Blumel. He is the president of U.S. Term Limits, nation's largest grassroots advocacy organization on this issue. So pretty excited to share that interview with you. Hope you enjoy it and hope you enjoy this episode. What's the first term limit you think of in the United States, the presidential term limits? And so this was started with 
the 22nd Amendment of the United States. I'm just going to read for you briefly what it says. And this is, no person shall be elected to the office of president more than twice. No person who has held the office of president or acted as president for more than two years of a term in which some other person was elected president shall be elected to the office of president more than once. And it wasn't until we have FDR where he leads us you know, into World War II. He gets the, the third term and then he died shortly into his fourth term. And it was around this time that you begin to see a lot of people not liking this. And a lot of people who were running for various tickets were using this idea of ratifying this 22nd Amendment as their main um, launching point of getting elected because they, they felt like this was something that needed to be changed. This was something that wasn't right. You know, some people argue that it was good to have FDR. I mean, I'm not the biggest FDR fan in general, but some people argue at the time that it was good to have president during that time of crisis into the war. But, you know, that's a, that's again, that's a different podcast. And this uh, amendment also applies to anyone that takes over for a president, right? So, yeah, that was interesting. The text clearly says a president could be in office for 10 years if they come into their first term due to either there was one president who stepped down and resigned the office. And in the case of an assassination, the vice president assumes office. As long as that term you're finishing is no more than two years, you're still eligible for two full terms. Right. So you could theoretically serve a total of 10 years, no more than that, because as soon as you, your first term goes over two years, that counts as one of your two electable terms. Right. And of course, this amendment was passed when Harry Truman was president, and so he would have been therefore grandfathered in, even though because he, he took over for FDR before the 22nd Amendment was ratified. Exactly. And so he would have been able to run for more than, than two terms, but he, he didn't. The amendment clearly doesn't apply to Congress, and there's a long history of whether or not term limits should be legislated for both the House and the Senate. And so looking into it, there have been 23 states that have passed some form of legislation within their state for congressional representatives. Unfortunately, those states were superseded by the Supreme Court, as the process is. If any state legislation is unconstitutional, the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, can determine their, the constitutionality of that issue. And so in 1995, U.S. term limits versus Thornton ruled only the Constitution and federal policy, not citizens, through state legislatures can set congressional term limits. In that 95 decision, Scalia was the minority dissenting opinion, advocating that part of the federalist structure of the government is for the people through the state legislatures to be able to influence policy such as congressional term limits. We know Congress has very high disapproval ratings, but U.S. term limits, the group that was involved in the Supreme Court case, is still around today as a large advocacy organization pushing for term limits to be passed. And they're really creative in the types of ways they're supporting uh, change, claiming that even though 82% of Americans are in favor of passing congressional term limits, and even though Congress has such high disapproval ratings, there is this stranglehold by incumbents that they have so much more power in getting reelected. There's a 95% reelection rate, 95% rate that they will retain their seat. 
So even though in public perception, if you do polling, people would like to see some sort of congressional term limits, they don't actually use term limits themselves in yep, their voting in policies. That's right. In in reality, there's there's no law about it as the Supreme Court struck it down in the states that were starting to pass it. And 23 states having some form of term limits is sizable, yet it was struck down. The courts even clarified Article 5 of the Constitution would apply since term limits for Congress people must be a constitutional issue. The court did put in the opinion, Article 5 will apply, and it lays out an alternate route to getting constitutional amendments ratified. It's never been used, but here's what it is. Article 5 basically states that instead of the usual two-thirds of the House and the Senate having to propose an amendment and then it being sent to the states, Article 5 gives an option for two-thirds of the states to hold conventions and propose an amendment. And now if you think about that, if two-thirds of the state legislatures call a convention and pass and propose an amendment, then three-fourths of state conventions ratify the exact same language that was passed in the two-thirds of states, it will become federal law. It will become constitutional law and an amendment, and it completely bypasses any say of Congress, the House, or the Senate, since both the proposal and the ratification are done completely by state legislatures and uh, state conventions. Didn't, didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, it's never been used. Um, we often see a number of policies being proposed, but it, in my opinion, term limits is the one that's more likely to one day go that route. I mean, what about you? I, I kind of wish this, this content, this nitty gritty was a little bit more touched on in the book. It could be me being a history nerd. I know this genre captures people who have a wide variety of interests, particularly more military focused people. But for me, being a government and history nerd, I wish there was more of it. What do you say? Yeah, I think like, so obviously the title portrays to the idea of them imposing, the assassins imposing their own term limits and having these assassinations. So that's where the, the term limits came from. But yeah, I would I agree with you. I would have liked to see a little bit more, maybe if they, because they don't actually propose term limits in their, it's not part of their uh, their demands. So I don't know, that would have been interesting to to dive a little bit more deeper into term limits and this idea of, because that's one way also to get out the, the pork, you know, trim the pork from the, drain the swamp. That's right. That's, that's the idea is that so much of the corruption going on and U.S. term limits researches this as well is done by incumbents who have held their seats for, for decades, 20, 30 year incumbents and a majority of the pork making its way into bills because they have a lot of political power and a lot of the corruption cases that we're identifying are not these newcomers to Congress. Think of like Michael O'Rourke. He was in it because he loved America. It's more these politicians who it becomes a career for. They get comfortable and it's easy for them to get reelected. And it's also easy for them to subvert the system and master the loopholes and dupe the average everyday citizen. Term limits would be one step towards making sure that doesn't happen. Right. And so I thought this was interesting uh, you, you brought this up to me uh, when we were first coming up with this podcast, but that, so this was a huge debate in the 90s and that that Thornton case was decided in 1995. And so that's two years prior to our publication of this book. And so I wonder if that, 
sort of idea, you know, that's in the media, does that jumpstart, oh, this is an interesting idea to, to launch my, my book when Flynn was writing this. That could also, that's a great point. That could also relate to the name change. We discussed last episode how, thankfully, yeah. at the last minute before publication, Vince changed the name of the book to Term Limits. It was going to be the right to stand up. And so it must have been in the media two years after the Thornton case quite a bit. And I also wonder if that's why the assassins, the letter and their demands that they sent, the ransom letter, didn't include a lot about this term limits because it was the title after the fact. Right. right. And I wonder if Vince had thought of editing that ransom note with this new title term limits and digging into that a little bit deeper as I, as I was craving. Now we're going to share with you our interview with Phil Bumel of U.S. Term Limits. Today, we welcome uh, Phil Bumel, president of U.S. Term Limits, to our show. We'd like to thank you for joining us today. Phil, how are you doing? Yeah, thank you very much. I'm doing great. We're glad you could join us on this podcast and answer a couple questions we had about you, about your organization. Um, we, we heard you're a fan of the book. We want to talk to you about that. We just, we just did a deep dive on term limits. And so just to start off, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, U.S. term limits and your mission and the history of the organization? Sure. Well, we've been around since uh, 1991, and our mission basically is to term limit pretty much every office in America of any jurisdiction of any size. But of course, the big goal is the U.S. Congress. And uh, we work on, uh, we have several different strategies to try to do that. And we, um, in our earlier days, uh, we were behind the move that successfully term limited federal congressmen in 23 states. Um, it's easy to forget that that even occurred. Uh, most of it was done, all of it was done by referendum. And uh, the reason why it's easy to forget is because in 1995, just two years before the Vince Flynn book was published, uh, the, uh, we were challenging the Supreme Court in the case U.S. Term Limits versus Thornton. And uh, the, all of the, the resolutions that were passed by the 23 states, it didn't fail anywhere. Uh, term limits passed in 23 states. And those referendums were challenged and uh, knocked down all at once by the U.S. Supreme Court in a split decision, five to four. And it was in this context of this turmoil regarding this issue that Vince Flynn was writing his book, Term Limits. Um, because, like I said, it was 1995 was the court case, and 1997 was the uh, was the when the book was published. Uh, so there's some connection there. Uh, in recent years, we've taken on another strategy because the Supreme Court says we can't do it by referendum. Uh, so we've taken other roads, which I'll probably I'll be happy to talk about as well. But that's who we are. And right now, we're organized uh, across the country. We have staff and offices, and um, I am uh, president of the organization and I serve on its board. I'm a volunteer and a contributor to the organization, not a staffer. Well, we had come to the same conclusion as you around Vince Flynn writing this book in 1997, and we found out it uh -huh. was a late change after the manuscript was written to change to the name Term Limits. And we were wondering, oh. if, yeah, we were wondering if that's why the theme wasn't explored in the specificity and detail we would have liked, you know, referencing the, the landmark Thornton case, or even referencing, uh, state legislatures that had attempted. We thought that would be a really good thing to write into the novel, and we figured out he came late to that name um, right before the produ Interesting. Uh, production. Interesting. Yeah. Because I wondered that too, but I, I had no idea until just now. 
And I know in reading it that uh, now there's themes in there that absolutely play into major themes of that era and today, of course, I'm talking about term limits. Um, but that explains a lot, actually. Fascinating. Yep. Yeah, mm. and it was interesting. Um, you mean you brought up the, the case and we, uh, when we were prepping for this, we went into a deep dive into what term limits are and, and the history of them. And it was really interesting to learn about, you know, the 23 states and mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately that got struck down. But so right. much of uh, popular entertainment, uh, movies, novels, TV, whatever, there, there's uh, based on underlying uh, political and constitutional issues, you know, you can look at Homeland, which I just, just finished House of Cards, that mm -hmm. they cover a lot of different issues, um, such as privacy, torture, ethics. How do you feel about the representation of, you know, the idea of term limits and should there be term limits or, or why isn't there in, in various media, media mm -hmm. forms? And do you think it's underrepresented? Interesting. You know, it, it's, it's actually tough to tackle term limits in, um, in the arts. Um, partly because on the surface, kicking out the kicking the bums out, if you look at it quickly like that, might lend to it. Um, but that theme is everywhere, in, in, including in the shows you mentioned. But specifically to talk about tournaments, it's actually a process reform. And once you get past the sort of emotional, yeah, let's kick the bums out attitude, you start realizing, oh, this is actually an institutional reform. It's actually sort of wonky. It's actually sort of boring. Um, it's very important and valuable and I think would be extremely helpful. Um, but it doesn't lend itself to that emotional punch, not the, not the specific issue of tournaments, but the themes that lead to it, the, the, the um, excesses of power and um, in, in, um, uh, the, the people in power trying to keep the challengers out and the machinations that they use in order to do that. That's part of popular culture, top to bottom. And every show that you're watching about corruption, about uh, corrupt politicians and uh, misused power and conspiracies and exploitation. This is all about people in power that are unchallengeable and taking use of that power for their own personal ends versus others. And that is the term, that's the, the, what we're trying to, to, uh, uh, to diminish when we're trying to push tournaments. So in one sense, the media is very helpful and the arts are very helpful um, in uh, in the with to the movement, um, even though specifically talking about tournaments, <laughs> that would put people to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was gonna say we'd have to talk about like statistics, like election statistics, and how competitive elections are, and things like that. And yeah, it's not that. Yeah, it's not high art. It could but, be the history teacher and geography, government, history, nerd in me. I was craving that in this uh -huh. book. I know for a wider audience, yeah. <laughs> the things you just mentioned would tune them out. That would wake me up. Um, right. But what wakes us up well, to Vince Flynn is the excesses you mentioned. His, his main antagonist is Senator Fitzgerald, who represents right. and is an analog in the story for these careerist, long-term fat cat politicians. Absolutely. Um, the first scene we see is him going back to his house in the middle of the night in a limo, completely hammered, you know, not even respecting his driver. And it says he's loose with women and he's loose with drinks. And we're thinking this is one of the power brokers in Washington. So how does your organization work in the real world where that is the challenge? Is that your biggest uphill battle that a success for you and for term limits would mean those personas in Washington come to an end, those careers and the comfort for decades That's of right. people comes to an end? That's 
that's it. I mean, uh, Fitzgerald is a perfect example. I think in the book, I highlighted my copy. Um, he was in for 34 years, uh, was in politics for over 40 years in, wow. in the character in the book. Um, now, there's real world analogs to that, of course, you know, in the U.S. Congress, and it's full of them. And the thing is about it and what we find so unjust and why tournaments are so important is that these characters like Fitzgerald, they win their reelection automatically. When they, when they decide that they are going to uh, run for reelection, their campaign coffers start filling with money immediately from special interests. You know, over 90% of all money from PACs uh, go to incumbents and not challengers. All right. Not even challengers in open seat elections. 90% go to incumbents. Why? Because they already won. Because since 1970, uh, over about 94% of the time, an incumbent running for their own seat has won. It's a very safe bet. And once they're in, you know how they're going to behave. And so, and politicians know that too. If they behave, this money just pours in. And for a challenger to, to fight that is statistically clearly pretty impossible. And the practical reasons why it's impossible is money. Uh, the uh, challenger has to raise a maximum of $2,800 per person. It's limited. And of course, they start out well behind the eight ball when somebody already has powers in the news every day, everybody knows their name. Just getting their name out costs an enormous amount of money, and they, so they start tremendously uh, behind the eight ball. And, of course, there's a zillion other advantages that incumbents have, franking privilege and everything else. So it, it, I don't think anybody even, it would question that. So the, so the point is that someone like that coasts to reelection, and something that's obvious, but one thing that might not be obvious to everybody is that there's, of course, a lot of people in that district where someone like Fitzgerald is serving – that could take that position and do a competent job. But serious goal-oriented people aren't going to run against that incumbent if the success rate of people that do so is basically about 6%. Serious people don't make bets like that. You get well-meaning, naive people running against Fitzgerald. You got uh, the gadflies running against Fitzgerald. Um, and it, it, but it doesn't work. And so you have two things going on. You have the, the incumbent has all these advantages, and then you have the challengers who, uh, who wisely sit out. They just coast back in, and they stay there forever. I like your political and mathematical calculations. I mean, those are odds that no one in Vegas would take, and now we expect our democracy right. to you know, check itself um, using these same odds and this mathematical formula, right. I guess, which is just a byproduct of history and how things have happened. So... Yeah. Thinking of change agents, such as your organization, mm -hmm. and I'm sure the, the people who've signed your pledge and who work closely with you, in the story, mm -hmm. we have a young first-term congressman from Minnesota, Michael O'Rourke. He becomes our mm -hmm. hero and our protagonist. He, we, we learn early that he is taking a very narrow interest in cutting $5 million from the president's next budget proposal, and he's sticking <laughs> right. to his guns around the Rural Electrification Administration. So whatever, this small thing. Right. But to him, that's how government should work. And when the president calls him, he's even willing to hang up on him and say, I am not voting for your budget. He takes it that seriously and has morals right. that say, I will do what my constituents want and I want what's best. And lowering the debt right now is that. So right. do you see any players that are like a Michael O'Rourke who say, this is not my career. I don't care about coming back. I will one, sign on to the pledge with term limits. And two, I'm not mm -hmm. going to take pressure from the big wigs. And does that have any right. lasting effects on either budget or 
term limits legislation? Well, such people exist for sure. And we have, we have about 70 people in the Congress right now that have signed our pledge saying that if they're elected or reelected, that they're going to sign on and co-sponsor a term limits amendment bill, and they do. Um, you get people that just like Michael O'Rourke who come into Congress all the time. They usually win, by the way, because of open seats. They're not beating incumbents to get there. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. One or two, one of two things happen. One, they go through the process. It's a seniority system. And the power lies in those that have been there a long time that run the committees, which is where the real power of the Congress is. And if you're a newbie, you are so far away from those levers of power. So you have two choices. You can be ineffectual and eventually give up, or you can climb that ladder and be in there for 30 years. And by the time you get there, you're one of them. You're no longer the Michael O'Rourke. You're the, you're the, you're the problem. Child. Yep. You're the problem. So, so that's why tournaments are so vital because one, you get more competitive elections because open seats are where you get competitive elections. It creates more competitive elections so that you have more chances for a Michael O'Rourke to get in. And then it levels that seniority system where everyone's sort of in the same boat um, and that he has a chance while he's still Michael O'Rourke to be in a position where his decisions matter and where his judgment counts and where he has an effect on the legislature. So it's, it's, uh, it's a double-edged sword there and both sides are good. It, it's, um, they're both aimed at somebody like a Fitzgerald who could not be in Congress anymore 40 years, you know? Yeah, so on Michael O'Rourke, he actually has a couple of quotes where it goes a little bit to an extreme. So everything you're advocating for seems like a great direction for American democracy to, to cut some of this corruption. But he is seriously yeah. contemplating in the book whether the assassins are, are right or justified. I know. <laughs> and the assassins, obviously, they take this push for all of their concerns, lowering the debt, something about term limits to an extreme, and say, we're going to enforce term limits. And by that, they mean right. the use of violence and assassination. Even in the book, the Speaker of the House right. is a target. So how do you feel about this character not being compromised, but willing to go so far thinking about extremism <laughs> in politics recently to say, maybe Washington is better off this right. way because at least something's getting done versus your organization. Yeah. You get something done in a legal <laughs> and productive manner. Correct. I mean, I, I just might as well say explicitly. Sure. The, <laughs> the terminus <laughs> of the title of this book it's fiction. Refer to something very different than the term limits that are advocated yes. by the organization U.S. Term Limits. Yes, um, definitely, definitely. <laughs> but how can people partner but to do this in a constitutional way? It can be. It can be done. You know, we, uh, everyone that I talked to about this idea. First of all, most people are for it, right? Polling shows that 82 percent of people in America are for it, including super majorities of Democrats, Republicans, and Independents. So this is everybody it's except for basically people that are in power, in power or somehow benefit from from the system as it is um so the big problem is is that there's two ways to amend the constitution and one of them is of course the congress itself proposed this term limits amendment well of course it's contrary to the self-interest of of everyone in congress uh to do that so it's unlikely and so sometimes even though everyone's for this and, gen and recognizes it's a good idea they feel like it just can never occur. Well, our first idea to get around this was to try to have the states do it by referendum and by initiative. And we were part of all of these campaigns across the country back in the 90s. Um, we thought we were doing pretty good. Um, our idea back then, by the way, was that we knew we couldn't get 50 states to turn with their own congressmen. 
because not all 50 states have the initiative process. But we figured if we got to about half of Congress term limited, then it would be all of a sudden in the self-interest of basically half of that body to term limit the other half. You know, I mean, it would all of a sudden it would ch change the power dynamic. That didn't work because the Supreme Court shut us down. Our new strategy is this. We don't expect Congress to pass to propose an amendment for term limits itself. We make moves in that direction just in case. We have everyone that we we approach everyone in Congress and ask them to sign a pledge saying, if I'm elected or reelected, I will vote for and support the uh, term limits amendment. And they tend to do so. But like I said, there's about 70. Um, and we always try to maintain the bills introduced in both houses and also uh, some measure of support there, but we don't put all our eggs in that basket. There's two ways to amend the US Constitution. Uh, if you look at Article 5 of the Constitution, it makes it very clear. It's actually an equal power of both the states to amend to a proposed amendment and also for Congress. And the way Congress does it, two thirds of the Congress propose an amendment, and then they send, if it passes, they send it down to the state's ratification where three quarters of the states have to ratify it and then it becomes part of the Constitution. Yeah. But states can do it too. If, if two-thirds of the states call for an amendment writing convention, states can send delegates, craft and propose an amendment, and then having proposed it, they send that pr proposal back to all the states at large and ask three-quarters of the legislatures to ratify it or not. If they do, it becomes part of the Constitution. This is more doable. So that Article doable. 5 strategy of, of kicking it to the states and relying on them has, has basically come around because of the Supreme Court decision in 95. That's right. They said we okay. couldn't do it by referendum. By referendum. Yeah. So since then, um, you've obviously had some successes, but I, I, was, I noticed there are different versions of term limits uh, being discussed mm -hmm. in a lot of the state conventions. And one initiative mm -hmm. of you guys is to streamline those into a single um, a single document or a single proposal so that the state conventions can be on the same page. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's pretty much right. Um, our proposal in the U S Congress to flip back one for a second is for a second is, um, six years in the house and 12 in the Senate and, um, uh, not retroactive. And, um, uh, and you can come back after sitting out. Okay. That's actually written in bills that are in, in Congress. But in the convention process, it's a little different because in the convention process, we, our lawyers, our constitutional lawyers, and we discussed when we went deep into this before we launched this, told us that the convention as viewed by the, the uh, founders of this country was to be the, the, to be the uh, body that does the proposing, not some outside organization, not the states themselves, it's the states in convention that make the proposal. So we've left open what the years would be, what the details would be of a uh, term limits proposal to come out of convention because it's not our job to do that. What we're trying to do is have, have uh, 34 states, which is two thirds, call for a convention, have delegates sent to the convention and they can hammer out what the exact details of the proposal would be. So in that sense, yes, we want to get everybody, we want to have this national discussion by the states. They would come up with the actual numbers. We have preferences, but we're part of that discussion. Um, but yes, we want to pull together all the states to have that discussion and to nail down what the proposal would be. And so I, I guess just to follow up on that, um, 
what would you say would be a win for your organization in, in five, 10, 50? I mean, I guess we know the, like the ultimate goal, but is there any sort of yeah. short term, you know, wins? Yeah, account? we don't, we don't think theoretically this could be a war of attrition because every time a state calls for a, um, a call for a amendment writing convention, it's permanent unless they have a second vote to repeal it. All right. That's established, established uh, jurisprudence. Um, but, th but as a practical matter and having some uh, experience in these things, we don't think it will work if you just do it one state a year for the next, <laughs> next 34 years. We, there has to be a critical mass where the people's attention is put to it. There's expense involved in this. You have to have motivation. Politicians have to feel pressure. So it's going to have to happen in a fairly short period of time. We started this effort three years ago. This is our third year into trying to do this. We have three states on board so far that have officially called for the convention, specifically solely on tournaments with the exact same language, and that is Florida, Mississippi, uh, Florida, I'm sorry, Florida, Missouri, and Alabama. Um, this year, we had money, we, had, we did a lot of uh, groundwork, and we were really excited about this year, and then this COVID hit. The legislatures are shut down, and so it really knocked us back this year. But we think that there's a banner year out there within the next five years where we get a dozen states uh, where it's going to become a front page issue and it's going to it's going to be huge. And we feel like that's necessary for this to be successful. But it's coming. And so I just want to bring up something that you, you said and something actually me and Mike were talking about how, you know, this term limits seems to be a public very high in public opinion. You mentioned like in the 80 percent of people agree with this. Yeah. Um, Yet ninety-five uh, percent of people win are incumbents. So you don't you're not really mm -hmm. seeing people imposing self-term limits themselves in their voting habits. Like why why do you think that no. is? Well, it's a good job. I mean, it's right. a good gig, and you fought hard to get there. Um, and it comes with all kinds of perks. And of course, it's really your. I know you have to go through elections every two years in the House, six years in the Senate, but it's your job to lose. I mean. Um, it, you don't even have to show up and work uh, if you don't want to. It's your it's, it's, <laughs> seriously. Um, a lot of them don't, and it's, they just have their staff and they coast. And a lot of them actually right. have gotten so old in office they're really incapable of doing the job. They they are marched into their committee chambers and sit down and bang gavels and things, but um, they're not really doing any work in the position at all. Um, this is a fabulous job that you work hard to get, and you don't want to give it up, basically. And we don't ask people to self-limit because it wouldn't serve any it would not lead to a reform of the institution if a bunch of newbies who come in they're true believers that care and that are actually trying to do their best job quit now it the the effect of tournaments comes when it is an institutional reform that is imposed on the entire congress where every single seat has a open seat election every six years or eight years or whatever the tournament is um and then you start having competitive elections again and then you get a lot of these Michael O'Rourke's are real-world versions of him coming into office. And that's when you start seeing the real difference made. It would be a job that folks want to do well for their constituents, but not a career that they're going to get comfortable in. Yeah. It changes your incentives. Um, I, I, there's a quote that I had highlighted in my copy of Term Limits. Yeah, it's sure. when um, some, lobbyist, some lobbyist or something's talking to, to Representative O'Rourke, and uh, the lobbyist says, uh, if you vote no on the president's budget, the American Farmers Association will be left with no other choice <laughs> than to support your opponent next year. And O'Rourke shook his head and said, nice try. 
but I'm not running next year. Yep. And yep. that's, that's a powerful point because it frees him up to be, to act on his conscious conscience and not sell out because that carrot and that stick are just not that attractive or scary. Yep. We call that the twist your arm scene where Michael O'Rourke isn't willing to have his arm twisted, but he's going to yeah. twist the other guy's arm physically. So yeah. <laughs> well, well, Chris, you had a question yep. for Phil. Yes, this is, this is great. And thanks for uh, sharing a lot about this, but we like to, we yeah, always like fun. to end this podcast by asking, you know, our, our guests what they're consuming at the present time. Um, is it books, movies, uh, TV, what are you watching? What are you reading? Can, can you give us any recommendations that you have? Uh, wow. Okay. Well, I'm a book reader for sure. And um, I'm currently reading a, a, a novel written in the 50s by the uh, economics writer for the New York Times named Henry Hazlitt. He has a book called The Great Idea. I think it was reissued later with the title uh, Time Will Run Backward. And so it's sort of a philosophical novel, very um, economics heavy. And then I'm also reading the the book that was written back, I think, in the 1840s. Um, you'll help, probably help me with the title on this because it's a popular one, but um, I mess it up. But the uh, uh, popular delusions and the madness of crowds, and oh, yeah. uh, which talks about just mass delusions, primarily in the financial space. And I'm by trade, I'm a financial planner, um, and so those are things that are of interest to me. And that's what I'm reading right now. Nice. Well, like Chris said, thanks for joining us. And we have to put one last plug in for you guys. I've been listening to oh, the U.S. Term Limits podcast, No Uncertain Terms. It's been great. Oh, yeah. Tell <laughs> me a lot on the issue. And so where else can people find you online besides listening to No Uncertain Terms? Great. Well, definitely. www.termlimits.com. What you want to do is go to termlimits.com, sign the online petition, We'll have your zip code, so we'll let you know if there's action to take nearby because we're always targeting individual politicians saying, hey, you're on this right committee. You gotta, you gotta, uh, you, there's a terminalist bill you got to vote on or, hey, you got to sign the pledge or whatever. So please sign the online petition at terminalist.com. And, yeah, check us out at the, the podcast every week. No uncertain terms. You can find it everywhere. Well, thanks nice. for coming on. This was a real pleasure. We learned so much. Yeah, thank you. Great. Thank you. It was fun. Well, thanks for joining us for this constitutional deep dive into the issue of term limits. Just so you know what's coming up on Mitch Rat Pod. June, we are going to be reviewing transfer of power. So if you want to join along with us, be sure to get out your copy, flip through it, read along. We will be releasing in the beginning of June our much quicker take on transfer of power. Nice. And as always, uh, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us on wherever you get your podcast. And you can find us online at MitchRapPod.com, or you can use reach out for us on Twitter with the handle of at MitchRapPod. And as always, just let Mitch be Mitch. Guys, we, we're just simply two fans offering a discussion and reviews of some of our favorite books and characters. This podcast is not officially affiliated with Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, or Simon & Schuster. But thank you to them for bringing us this wonderful world of Mitch Rapp.